Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. For today's episode, I'm joined by three representatives of the Organization of Biological Field Stations, or OBFS, which is an AIBS member organization. My guests are Dr. Laura Rockatenitz, who's the director of the University of Akron Field Station in Ohio and is currently serving as president of OBFS, Dr. Rhonda Strumminger, who is co-director and co-founder of the CHAS Field Station in Canale Hidalgo, Mexico, and she's also affiliated with the University of Padova in Italy and is the co-chair of OBFS's International Committee, and Dr. Chris Lorenz, who's a professor of biological sciences at Thomas More University and is the director of the Ohio River Biology Field Station. He is also currently serving as past president of OBFS. During the episode, we had a great chance to chat about all things field station, uh, including the research performed there, as well as the ways in which field stations collaborate through organizations like OBFS to improve their research, education, and outreach efforts. Let's go straight to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, thank you. So I, I guess one of the first things I wanted to talk about was the fact that, you know, uh, you're all just freshly back from Costa Rica. So could you tell me a little bit about OBFS and, um, you know, the meeting that you recently attended? Sure. This is Lara. And I, I'd love to tell you about the amazing trip that we just had to La Selva Biological Station um, in Costa Rica. Our organization, the Organizational Biological Field Stations, hosts an annual meeting, and we try to hit an international location every few years because we are an international organization and we want to be inclusive um, to all of our members. So we had the privilege and opportunity to stay at La Selva, one of the Organization of Tropical Studies sites, and it was magical in so many ways. Um, you know, our my our first day there were sloths and toucans and, you know, butterflies and birds of every color. And it was great to reconnect with old friends and meet new friends um, and get excited about all of the wonderful things that OBFS has been working on over the last year uh, and get to share that with our membership. So this is Rhonda Strominger from the CHAS Field Station, which is in Canali, Hidalgo in Mexico, and I was excited to get to Costa Rica for my first visit there and to see the amazing things at the La Selva Field Station. They're um, really an impressive operation, um, doing a lot to support good science in, in that part of the world. What got me most excited about the OBFS meeting there was bringing people from as far away as Kenya and Alaska together to talk about the different challenges um, we face as field stations and also the opportunities we have to collaborate and learn from each other. So it was a pretty exciting meeting from an international perspective. We did have a lot of great stories to share and tales to tell from the last year. So we got to get to know each other more and come up with new projects. Yeah, this is Chris and I'll echo what Laura and Rhonda said. Costa Rica is an amazing place and as much so La Salva Biological Station and the OTS, the Organization of Tropical Studies were just gracious hosts that opened their doors and arms to us. And that's one of the nice things about our annual meeting. We rotate around field stations. So we have members across the world on 21 countries, six continents, and we get to see field stations when we hold our annual meeting. And we see a lot of similarities between our sites, but yet some differences we can take home with us. And it's just a really wonderful meeting to share among our like-minded individuals. 
Okay, great. And I think, you know, that gives us a nice entree into talking about field stations a little bit in a, more of a general sense. Um, you know, can you tell us what is a field station? You know, how large are they? You know, do they you know, cover vast expanses of land? Is it variable? Um, you know, we've, we've captured, I think, the international element well. But, um, you know, what in general, um, you know, to the extent that we can make generalizations, are they like? I'm going to let Rhonda take this one because she's written extensively about the nature of field stations. So I'm going to let her take a stab at this and then I'll, I'll maybe pepper some things in after she finishes. Please jump in. So field stations in, in the work I've done on studying biological field stations is um, a very, um, very basic thing. It's do you support researchers doing research in a particular place and do you call yourself a field station? And that about is it. And those two criteria, at least in my research, is enough to say you're a field station. And you're asking how diverse we are. We are all over the place in terms of size. We might be one building with a few research um, with a bit of equipment, um, or we might be a station that can sleep 150 with a staff of hooks and outreach and education coordinators. Um, I'll pass it back to Laura and Chris to add to that. Yeah, I like to say that field stations come in every shape and size, and that's part of what makes the community so unique and fun to be a part of. So um, as as Rhonda said, it could just be, you know, one person and one acre. And as long as you're doing research there and communicating that science to, to other researchers and to the general public, um, and you call yourself a field station, then then you fit into our community, and it makes it oh, uh, I think it makes us welcoming in that way. You know, um, we can we have a lot of field stations that are associated with institutes of higher learning, but not all. Some are privately run nonprofits or for profits, and and really because it's you know there's not a a specific definition other than what Rhonda said to what makes a field station it means that anybody can join us if they self-identify. Yeah, exactly. Extremely variable and essentially outdoor laboratories, outdoor classrooms that focus on the natural environment. And our audiences tend to be varied as well from students to scientists to the general public. It's the big emphasis on the public and communicating science to them. And we tend to take on similar missions of research, education, conservation, and outreach. And then we're all uniquely suited to our local environments. Okay, great. That makes sense to me. Um, let's uh, let's take it a back from the general a little bit and speak about you know what each of you work on specifically at your field stations, just to you know give people an idea of the sort of scope of research and you know the areas in which you work. So uh, I'll throw that open to all of you. I'll start. Uh, this is Lara again. I run a field station that's located about halfway in between Cleveland and Akron, Ohio. And we like to say we're on the edge of the urban-rural interface. So we're just located about 30 minutes from our campus. And we have about 500 acres um, that we can use for research and education. So students can come from the university just for a class in the afternoon or a lab. Right now, our classes that are happening out at the field station are entomology and vertebrate zoology. Uh, but it's open to all um, disciplines across campus. So if, if there was a law class that wanted be, to be taught at the field station, then they could use our site. Our primary focus right now is K through 12 um, education. So we see about 3,500 students a year either at the field station or in their classroom. And we're teaching them about environmental education and place-based education um, 
kind of across the board, um, things that are important to the teachers specifically, and also things that really relate to the, the place where we are, which is in the Cuyahoga River watershed. So we talk about wetlands and watersheds and glaciers and all kinds of things that make our space unique. Um, and we're different than other field stations because we don't have overnight housing and um, we're not located in kind of a remote inaccessible area. We're located in a public park and that makes it, um, you know, really accessible for the general public to utilize the resources that we bring to the community. And a very different field station. This is Rhonda um, with my field station, CHAZ, in the Sierra Huasteco region of Mexico. So we're kind of between the highland and the lowlands. And um, we really got started because of my co-founder and co-director's research in the area. He was um, looking, well, he discovered that um, this hybrid zone where you had two types of sore tails that were hybridizing, that, that were hybridizing. So being, being part of the community um, in Mexico and returning year in and year out to this one town in Mexico, Calnali, really got um, my co-founder, Gil Rosenthal excited about starting a field station. So um, it became um, a bit of a passion project for, for us. So um, almost 20 years ago, we bought a house and land and converted it into what's now a field station. And we um, can sleep 16 people. We're on about two hectares. We've got um, the river runs through the backyard where some of the fish are, but we have about 50 plus different sites around the mountains where we're located where people go and collect fish and we help with permit collecting um, for the fish but we're not just about the fish anymore that's how we got started um, is is to provide access to this hybrid zone but now we support um, folks looking at lizards looking at um, mice looking at snakes um, looking at a lot of different animals the riparian corridor um, there's a lot of a lot of rivers in this area. So we've also been su supporting um, through a partnership with a local nonprofit. Um, they are a, they have a ranch and grow coffee and they wanted help looking at regenerative ranching practices. So we've supported them looking at the health of the river and the soil and beetles and brought in other types of, of scientists. So it's slowly it's grown um, to be much more than just about the sword tails where we got started. And um, and we host about 50 to 60 scientists a year from undergrads to graduate students to faculty. And, um, and what I, I will say is pretty key in the success of a station like ours are the local partnerships and being part of the community. And our, um, our outreach work has been a really big part of that um, and how we convey to the community through a lot of transparency and open houses what we're actually doing at the station to keep their support and also to support them as they need information about the health of the environment. So that's that's another very different model than what Laura has. And Chris has got a totally different model. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Rhonda. So Thomas More University is a undergraduate institution, primarily liberal arts school, and, and our field station mirrors the mission of the University of Education and Development of Students. So we use the field station the facilities and our programs to develop undergraduate students in, in the STEM fields. And so we offer internships where students come on site and they spend the entire summer, 10 to 12 weeks living on site, forming this tight knit community around individuals that have similar interests of the environmental protection and the passion for conservation. 
Our research focuses on the bioassessment of aquatic ecosystems. So we use fish, macroinvertebrates, algae, and physical chemistry parameters to assess water quality. We also do a lot of conservation research, namely two groups, freshwater mussels and hellbenders, which are North America's largest salamander. And we propagate both groups to hopefully return, restore their populations back in the wild. And so bioassessments, conservation, are two main research focuses with uh, the undergraduates in mind. Coupled with that, James, we do what we call vertical alignment. Our K-12 programs are taught by our undergraduate students and that mentorship that they provide is really instrumental in their development. And it's one of the things that teachers love about field stations where the students get a behind the scenes look and see science in action, see research up close. So they can go visit a zoo, a museum, an aquarium, and sort of looking from the outside in. When you're at a field station, you're immersed in the science, you're immersed in the research. And so our undergraduate students are doing research, teaching the K-12 students, serving as mentors. And that really interplay of research and education is a hallmark of field stations, along with just being embedded in the environment. Yeah, let's talk about that a little more, you know, the educational element. Um, you know, is that sort of something that's kind of, you know, baked into the, the very structure of field stations that they provide these sort of educational opportunities? Um, and, you know, what's it like for the students to get to spend time in them? Um, you know, you can speak about yours, you can speak generally or about yours individually, whichever, you know, whichever approach seems best to you. I'll take this one because we this really is a big focus for us. But I would say it's not necessarily the case that it's a big focus for every field station. I think although um, every field station kind of has the, the, the four pillars that Chris talked about, education, research, conservation, and outreach, um, you know, some way more heavily on certain areas than others. And so uh, when my field station started, it weighed very heavily on research. And over time, our faculty have shifted kind of their their interests and they're doing maybe more um, uh, more work in the lab around, you know, biomimicry and working with polymers or engineering departments. And so they're not out in the field as much. And with that switch in kind of our faculty interests, we made sure that we lifted up the K through 12 outreach at our field station. And because of where we're located uh, in northeastern, northeastern Ohio, we have access to two really large urban areas in both Cleveland and Akron. And so we are working on a no cost model with those school districts to make sure that we're, we've reduced barriers to participation um, at our site. So that means that we don't charge for students to come out to the on a field trip and we don't charge for um, our scientists or educators to go into the classroom to to give student experiences. And we found that this is starting to break down barriers for students who may not have had these opportunities otherwise um, to, you know, come out to a site that's 400 acres in, in size. And, you know, we get a lot of questions about bears and alligators and crocodiles when students from the city are coming out to our station because they just haven't experienced like a large chunk of land um like that that is uninhabited and and ha you know is filled with different habitats like wetlands and forests and grasslands um and so i think that for us a large part is the accessibility and the other part is making sure that we are working to create an environment a social environment that is not only welcoming but really is working to advance equity um, of 
of who these wild spaces are for and who gets to use them um, in research and in STEM and for recreation and for outreach. So that for us has been a really important part. And it, it is so fun to get to introduce kids of all ages, little kids, you know, kindergartners up to, you know, the through college age students um, to the outdoors when that's not necessarily been part of their their normal childhood, you know, yet. And we're hoping that we really help create the next generation of scientists and STEM researchers um, by giving them the opportunity to experience it early and often. So from from our perspective in, in rural Mexico, you know, we're, we're more of a destination for the scientists. So the education from our perspective really needs to come through those community partnerships and collaborations. Um, one of the things we, we've done in the last few years is we um, have converted a food truck to becoming a mobile learning laboratory with the idea that we're gonna bring the science to the different communities in the area. So we're starting in the schools and getting some visibility, but we've even, the um, we created murals on the truck itself. So the truck itself is a learning, a way to look at healthy versus unhealthy um, environment, aspects of the environment, um, what animals you might see, which ones you won't see, depending on what's happening with the farming and other agriculturally um, intense aspects of the local community. So we are going into the schools and we are, um, Scientists who work at CHAS are asked to think about how they're going to communicate their science to the community and how the community has time to ask questions of them. So we do an annual event and we also do a summer camp that we run with a local, the local nonprofit that we've partnered with down the street. So a little different because we are more research focused, but the um, I'm a social scientist who has studied education and outreach. So was really important for us to avoid parachute science and really avoid, you know, having folks come in and not give anything back locally. And I think what's a beauty of the OBFS community is that is a priority at almost all of the stations I've ever met. I haven't heard anyone who hasn't had it as a priority that, you know, we're, we're part of a community um, locally that we need to pay attention to. Yeah, definitely. Education is a big part of our mission and the field station is just an ideal setting to develop students. Uh, students come in with interest in biology, wildlife science, fisheries, etc. And they really make that transition from a student to a researcher to a professional scientist. Research is showing us that field stations are transformative experiences in developing a sense of belonging into the scientific community. It's very powerful in that students are immersed in the field practicing science, but equally so, the scientists are showing their personal side as well. And so it's sort of meeting in the middle and the students really take a leap from a passive observer student to an active researcher in their development of their confidence, their skills, et cetera, are off the charts. And then with Laura's enthusiasm at that K-12 level, she simply brings more students into the STEM field. So they realize, oh, I can make a career out of this. Oh, there are pathways for me to develop my interests. And that is enlightening and really also powerful in getting students who may not otherwise think of themselves as field scientists or scientists in general, um, the interest level really increases when they come to field stations. 
Yeah, it's the um, the interlinkage and embeddedness with community is something that seems to be certainly coming through. Um, let's pivot a little bit and talk about you know some of this from the research angle as well. Uh, you know, I'm I'm interested. You know, one of the things we discussed talking about was um, you know climate change and and the ability of field stations and you know the the information garnered there to uh, you know provide sort of a bellwether for climate change and you know show us some things that are happening over time. Um, so I was you know wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how it you know kind of plays out um, across the you know the very different field stations that uh, you all represent? So um, I would say that, you know, climate change as a, as a concept is something that it comes up a lot. I mean, you're dealing with um, a rural Mexican population, which I think looks at science a bit differently than maybe some of the U.S. populations experience it and look at it. Um, we're, we're mostly dealing agriculturally with, um, with ranchers and farmers. And so you know, they're, they're seeing some changes where we are um, up in the mountain area. And, and we see our job as a field station is to help collect the data that's going to help them make better decisions. So while regenerative ranching isn't a focus of our researchers, the water shore is. Or we have, you know, scientists looking at the beetles. All of these have indicators that we can give back to the community and have presented what we've been finding through these projects as to what's been happening um, that's not good for the environment. So creating more awareness of how human impacts are having an effect on the environment, we see is really where we can help because that's where we provide reliable um, expertise. The people who live in the area know that land very well, but we can bring in some more information to show here's where things aren't going so great. Maybe we need to try some other ways of looking at um, grazing your cattle or how we're clear cutting, maybe clear cutting these aren't so great. Maybe there's some other plants and flora that make better sense here. Um, and I and I know there are these types of activities are also happening at different stations throughout the US. Um, it's but this is how our station is looking at the part we can play in in educating um, and supporting um, some uh, some productive ways of looking at the earth that can alleviate some of the climate change fear that people have. Yeah, in many ways, James, field stations were pre-adapted to be able to document climate change in that we've been gathering data for decades. And to be able to say there's changes occurring, you need those baseline data. So we've been gathering data such as when's the first snow melt, snowfall, when did the leaves come out, when did the birds and the butterflies arrive? Those sorts of data were critical to have as a foundation. So then we can start to see changes and that's it's long-term studies that are absolutely critical occurring at field stations for you to be able to capture the changes that we are now seeing. And so with all of us across the world gathering those data from high altitude to sea level and even below, our colleagues at NAML, the National Association of Marine Labs, combined with OBFS, has this um, tremendous number of folks gathering data across the globe for decades so that we can then, again, document the changes that are occurring now and the impacts and hopefully we begin to mitigate those uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I'll just add, at, at our field station, we had a 20-year-long study on spotted salamanders. So the, the data is on a diverse number and type of organism, plants, animals, all across the board. Um, the faculty director at the field station right now, Dr. Randy Mitchell, studies pollinators, and so he's been doing long-term studies on pollinator patches and looking at um, pollinators across the state and helped lead a survey in Ohio a few years ago for the rusty patch bumblebee, which was declared 
um, extirpated from Ohio. And so those researchers are providing this uh, long view snapshot, but then field stations also have their finger on the pulse of like what's happening currently that maybe there is no data on yet. So in Ohio, we had an outbreak of beech leaf disease that was being tracked through our different park districts, which we're really lucky to have great park districts. But then, you know, we can let our partners know in terms of the land that we're using, like that this is something that we should be on the lookout for. And we're kind of on the front lines of those spotted lanternflies moving through um, from Pennsylvania right now. There's starting to be reports of them in the Cleveland area. And so this is something that we are aware of enough to be keeping an eye peeled for on our 500 acres. Um, whereas, you know, the, the township parks may not have that as something on the on you know they may not have their finger on the pulse of those types of invasion ecology things coming in and so you know we can even if there's not a ton of research being done on it just having our eyes and knowledge on those types of issues i think plays a really important role in the community and helps us give back in ways that that may you know not necessarily be at the forefront of our mission but certainly are important um, when it terms to tracking environmental changes over time yeah, that, that sounds incredibly valuable, having that sort of continuity of research or observation over long periods of time. Um, and, you know, I think you've made the case very well for, you know, the the value of field stations. Um, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, um, achieving support for field stations and the kinds of things that you've done. You know, I know that they were mentioned in the Chips and Science Act. So what's that aspect of the outreach side been like, um, you know, and, and how are things going? I'm going to let Chris um, take the the lead on that because he's been instrumental in crafting our strategic plan and was really instrumental in that language being adopted um, into some of the new federal policies. Yeah, one of the valuable assets of field stations is our remote locations and yet also sometimes in urban settings as well. So the variety of locations, but sometimes that can be a detriment too in terms of being off the grid and off the radar of either our administrators or elected officials. And so we work really hard um, over the course of the last five years within the organization to focus on sustainability of our field stations, member support. And part of that is raising the awareness of the value of field stations at the federal level. And so we partnered with you, AIBS. We partnered with um, uh, Joe, Joseph Bischoff with Cornerstone Agency in D.C. to work with elected officials, their staffers, to help get field station and marine language into the CHIPS Act, into the NSF Reauthorization Act. And that was instrumental in saying that field stations, along with museums, national laboratories, and like-minded institutions, are worthy of funding. They're valuable in uh, not just basic research, but applied research that benefits uh, communities. And so raising the awareness and advocating for field stations at the federal level is part of our strategic plan and um, very critical to sustain our field stations that is adequate amounts of funding. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I'm just being conscious of time, Bob, but before we close out, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about um, something that's on the horizon, perhaps at your field station or more generally, whichever uh, you know comes to you first. It's something we might keep an eye out for in the future. Well, we have two years left on our strategic plan, and we have been um, kind of plowing through our goals um, in the most positive of ways. I'm I'm so proud of our volunteer board of directors and all of our volunteer committee chairs that have really made pushing the initiatives and priorities in our strategic plan through to the top of, um, of 
you know, what our focus is right now. So we have, um, we have, you know, a lot of dedication to our diversity, equity, um, and inclusion activities happening at the, at the, the board level. And so I think we're, you know, consistently trying to um, make sure that that's at the forefront of making field stations welcoming and accessible to folks from all different backgrounds and abilities. Um, and um, and so stay tuned for more on that. But certainly we're, we're hoping to continue our a good track record of publications in that that format. Um, it was such a successful meeting that we had some really great topics on field safety and best hiring practices and that type of thing that we're going to have folks kind of write up some short reports on those um, topics that were presented at the conference this year. And we'll have those out on our brand new website, which is going to be released soon, which has been a big, um, a big uh, undertaking for us. But we're really excited that it's that it's almost here. Um, recently, some of our members got an NSF grant to continue our virtual field program, which is an, uh, a way for people to be able to access field stations, even if they can't get to them physically. And so there'll be new initiatives coming from that um, funding opportunity that our members secured. All kinds of exciting things. Chris, Rhonda, do you guys have anything to yeah. add? Um, I'll, I'll just add from the international perspective, um, we had uh, the first ever um, regional virtual conferences for Latin American stations and then another one for European and African stations. And what's exciting about those is we're trying to launch some virtual cafes. I know Zoom, people want to go to field stations, but what's great about Zoom is we can do virtual cafes to invite guest speakers, maybe someone who um, uh, who we've wanted to have access to for a long time, but it's just too hard we can try to invite them as a special guest that OBFS invites to come speak to stations for an hour or so, regardless of your time zone, different drinks in hand. We can enjoy learning from someone that we wouldn't ordinarily have access to. So whether it be someone from USAID or some other international funding agency, um, or whether it be just focusing on a station, like um, we have one coming up where we'll focus on one in Kenya, um, at the Impala field, uh, the Impala Research Center is going to be a focus of another virtual cafe coming up. So we have a lot of events to keep members learning from each other, even when we're not meeting face to face. And I'm pretty excited about that programming. Um, and we also do an exchange program where stations can visit each other. And we also have something called the matching program where stations, three or more stations can collaborate on a project. And there's some seed money that OBFS offers. Um, and also small grants. And Chris can talk more about that opportunity that OBFS is now offering, again, thanks to our strategic plan. Yeah, the collaborations is key in, in our strategic plan. So we are working with you, James, AIBS, and we're strengthening our partnerships with NAML, as we mentioned, the National Association of Marine Labs, but also UFERN, the Undergraduate Field Experience Network, ESA, SEEDS Program, SACNIS. So we recognize strength in numbers, and working with these organizations that have mutual interests and missions to advance ours together. And so that collaboration emphasis is definitely on uh, strengthened over the last couple of years. And then again, giving giving our members support through um, offering funding opportunities for them. So we have a, a new mini grant program we're excited about where our members can apply for funds 
on programs that will serve a lot of our member stations and even those um, beyond that. So many exciting things happening and we appreciate this opportunity to share them with you. No, thank you very much. And, you know, that's uh, certainly a lot of very exciting stuff for us to look out for in the future. And I hope you'll come back and uh, and tell us about it as it comes to fruition. Um, but in the meantime, thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having thank us. You. It was really our pleasure. Thank you, James. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.